the work of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, exploring what it means for us to know the presence of the Spirit among us uh, and what that means for us as God's people. And we didn't uh, read out the passage this morning, but uh, you may be familiar with the story of the Israelites as they are travelling from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan, uh, led by Moses. Moses was anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the one who would lead them out of slavery. Uh, he would give them the law and take them to the promised land. But as they're travelling, they're complaining again and again. In Numbers 11, they're complaining because they're getting sick of the manna that God had miraculously provided for them on a daily basis. They want to eat meat. Moses is almost at the end of his tether with this stubborn people. And so he comes to the Lord and he asks for the burden to be shared. He says, I'm just one man, I I can't cope with this anymore. And so the Lord graciously answers his prayer. He says, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So the Lord graciously hears his prayer. He uh, shares this anointing of the Spirit with 70 other men. And the sign that these men have the Spirit is that they prophesy. They speak the word of God. Even these two men, Eldad and Medad, who hadn't gone out to the tabernacle, they also prophesy. And when it's uh, reported to Moses and Moses is told, you should stop these men, they're not, they're not in the right place. They're prophesying but they're back in the camp, not at the tent of meeting. Moses says to them, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. We could say that this is the first prophetic prediction of the day of Pentecost. Last week we saw that the Messiah, described in Isaiah 11 uh, as the shoot or the branch of Jesse, fulfilled in the person of Jesus, would have the spirit of the Lord upon him. The spirit would enable him to fulfil the Lord's mission to bring justice to the earth and to make God's people a holy people. The Spirit would equip him with the qualities he needs. Essentially, three main qualities expressed in three pairs. So, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, so to be a good and just ruler, a king needs great wisdom and a discerning heart. The Spirit of counsel and might, That speaks of strategic ability. A good ruler is able to put his plans into practice. 
to gain victory over his enemies and to see that his good laws and policies are carried out. And thirdly, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now the fear of the Lord is often equated with obedience. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In a sense, the king's success, this branch of Jesse, his success in the, those first two areas of wisdom and of strategy would be pointless without the third. He must exercise wisdom and might in the context of walking in obedience to the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And that's why verse 3 of Isaiah 11 emphasises this again. That's the wrong reference there. That's Numbers 11, sorry. Um, 11 says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. We don't normally associate delight with fear, do we? The Hebrew word there literally means fear. We can't dumb it down to just mean something like respect or even awe. To fear the Lord is to see him for who he is in all of his majesty and glory and holiness and to see ourselves in contrast to that as mere creatures. Fearing the Lord means recognising that he has both the power and the absolute right to snuff us out just as we blow out a candle because he is the creator, we are but creatures. Compared to him, we're dust. It means seeing that in every point of our existence we owe everything to him and so he deserves our absolute loyalty and trust. Every person in the scriptures who came face to face with a glimpse of the glory of God fell down on their face because the greatness of God is completely overwhelming for a creature who tries to comprehend it. Now, there's a fear of the Lord that brings slavery. When we come face to face with his might and his holiness, but we're still in our sin. In that case, all we can see is the threat of condemnation and judgement. That kind of fear can still lead to obedience, but it's the obedience of slavery. It's doing what we think is right out of fear of what he may do to us if we don't. That kind of fear of the Lord might produce what seems externally to be a very good and righteous kind of life, but really it's just a facade for a heart that knows no love of God and no delight in who he is. But there is a good fear of the Lord that brings freedom. As we see in this verse, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's when we see that this all 
powerful, all majestic, holy and glorious God who has the power to give life and to destroy, who owes us nothing but to whom we owe everything, has actually set his love upon us. He forgives and restores and accepts us and he calls us his children. To call out Abba Father is to express a healthy, good fear of the Lord. But see how this is the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of adoption. Fear of condemnation leads to slavery, but the Spirit comes to us and shows us that because of the cross of Christ, we're set free from sin and death. We're set free from the demanding, condemning demands of the law and we're brought into the Father's family. He doesn't remove the fear of the Lord, he just changes our orientation to it so that we delight in him rather than fear his judgments. The Hebrew word for delight is actually simply the verbal form of the word for wind or spirit, ruach, which we saw last week. In everyday language, it was the word used for smell. When you breathe in and what you smell is pleasant and you take pleasure in what you smell. When my neighbours recently had a barbecue, the smell wafted over the fence, made me hungry. So when I went out to do this grocery shopping, I bought a leg of lamb because I wanted the substance of what that smell had spoken to me of. The Lord smelled the smoke of the burnt offerings and it pleased him because it spoke to him of the reconciliation between him and his people. So we can only delight in the fear of the Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit as he breathes on us and as we breathe in the aroma of his grace. He reveals to us the holiness and the glory of God in his terrifying majesty and he points us to the cross in which we see that we may now come to this God in Christ without fear of judgment and call him Abba Father. We also saw last week the promise in Joel that this same spirit who was upon Jesus in all that he did as Messiah would also be poured out on all flesh. This is the point of Jesus coming to give the gift of the spirit. At the end of Peter's sermon, we saw the beginning of his sermon uh, as Sally read to us. At the end of his sermon, the people hear that Jesus who was crucified was now raised from the dead and is Lord of all and they're terrified and they ask, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See how the promise here is not merely the forgiveness of sins, 
but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very often we might only preach half of the Gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. True, but it's not where it stops. The second part of the Gospel is Jesus rose from the dead. He is at the right hand of the Father and he pours out his Spirit. And so we have been given the Holy Spirit. Peter has essentially said this a little bit earlier in his sermon. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The core mission of Jesus as Messiah, the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rested, was to pour the Spirit out on God's people. Let's hear someone else speak about it, John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptising with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. See, the two elements were there too, weren't they? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and this is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. He's the Lamb of God But what's the goal of him taking away the sins of the world? It is to give the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, uh, John's baptism with water was a sign of this spirit baptism. Many people were coming to John to be baptised, but there would be one who would stand out from the crowd, not in just that he would receive the spirit, but that the Spirit would descend and remain. That's picking up on Isaiah's words. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest, shall remain on him. But in order to be the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit, he must also be the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. His cross was the necessary step along the way to the giving of the Spirit because before the Spirit would come and dwell with his people, they first must be cleansed of their sin once and for all. They first must be sanctified, purified, so that they might become a suitable dwelling place for God by his Spirit. So the Messiah comes, the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him in order that he might send the Spirit to God's people so that the Spirit might rest and remain upon them. The Spirit will enable them to be a part of the Messiah's kingdom, to share in his reign and his victory, to be, as was always promised from the promises of 
given to Abraham a priestly kingdom through whom the blessing of God would flow to all the nations. Sometimes it can be helpful to uh, look at all of that in diagrammatic form. So here's a diagram that kind of gives a bit of an overview of the, the work of the Spirit through salvation history. Eden was the paradigm, the model for how things are to be by a creational design. Eden was a holy place, a place in which God dwells and walks with his people. Genesis 3.8 describes it as the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The word for cool there is ruach. It's like the, the cool breeze that comes in at the end of the day, that pleasing coolness that brings refreshing and rest. The Lord walking suggests some kind of uh, visible manifestation which points us to the sun who, as we saw last week, the sun mediates all that the Father initiates. So really that was a, a Trinitarian act there in the garden. There was communion with the Father through the Son in the power and the working and the delight of the Holy Spirit. Then we come to the Old Covenant, which is the shadow of what is to come. The Old Covenant was instituted because of sin and in the Old Covenant the people of Israel are called to live by faith, hearing the promises of God and trusting that he will justify them. These Old Testament people, right from Abel through Noah, Abraham and countless others, you can see it all in Hebrews 11, they could only have faith in God and his promises because the Holy Spirit was at work in them. These people were saved. They were born again. They were children of God in the same way that anyone who has faith in Jesus is saved and born again and is a child of God. So all who lived by faith in the promises knew the indwelling of the Spirit in them as a person. But they also had a system that foreshadowed what was to come. The system included prophets, priests and kings. They were all anointed in a special way by the Holy Spirit to fulfil their unique roles in Israel, to speak God's word to the people, the prophets. The priests mediated between the people and God and the kings ruled God's people in God's power and authority. Jesus is all three rolled into one. Although he wasn't just a prophet, he is the word made flesh. He's not merely just a priest, he is the great high priest who offers himself as the sacrifice to take away our sin. And he's not just another king, he is the king of kings, the perfect image of his father. So there's the old covenant and then with Christ comes the new covenant, the substance of which the old covenant foreshadowed. And in the new covenant this anointing 
comes not just to special people, prophets, priests and kings, but through Christ comes to all who are in him, who are united with him. This special anointing comes, you could say, as a package deal with the work of the Holy Spirit in renewing us and saving us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is one with the gift of salvation. If you are saved, you have been baptised with the Holy Spirit. The question though is, well, what's the sign? How do we know that the Holy Spirit has come to us in this way? Now, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters have traditionally said that it's speaking in tongues. That's based on uh, what happened on the day of Pentecost in our, in our reading when the apostles spoke in other languages and two other occasions in the, the book of Acts. They're kind of on the right track but still missing the point in a way because there are, there are times in Acts when the Holy Spirit falls upon people and speaking in other tongues isn't mentioned. In fact, outside of the book of Acts and the book of 1 Corinthians, speaking in tongues is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It would be strange if tongues, speaking in other tongues was the sign of the Spirit that it's not mentioned in other books. Where our Pentecostal brothers and sisters are on track is not the other tongues bit, but the speaking bit. Because what we see consistently across all of the instances of the Holy Spirit falling on people is that they speak the word of God and they speak it boldly. Acts 2.11 says they declare the mighty works of God. Acts 4.31, they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 10.46, they speak in tongues and extol God. And Acts 19.6, they speak in tongues and prophesy. So sometimes it was in other languages, but mostly it was in their own native language. What's important is not the language in which it's spoken, but the fact that they are speaking and what they are speaking is the word of God. That was at the heart, wasn't it, of Joel's prophecy. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. See, pouring out my spirit and they shall prophesy go together. Remember Moses' words, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So in the new covenant in Jesus, there's no longer, as there was in the old covenant, a particular class of people called the school of the prophets. Not because the Lord has done away with prophecy, but because the ministry, the gift of prophecy, 
has now been extended to every one of God's people, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their social standing. To be a prophet in Israel was no small thing. In fact, it was a deadly serious thing because if you were found to be a false prophet and if you led the people astray and they ended up worshipping idols, the penalty was death. A prophet must do two things. They must hear the Lord speak clearly and they must faithfully speak God's words to the people. So to claim to be a prophet was quite a thing. It's the highest privilege that any preacher can know to be able to both hear God speak and to speak his words. God is the God who speaks. He brought the universe into existence by speaking. The Son himself is called the Word because he delights to do whatever the Father says. He delights in the fear of the Lord, as we've seen. Whatever, Whenever the Father speaks, the Son is there, doing the Father's will in the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. And God's word is the way that he works in this world. His word always accomplishes what he sends it to do. Every molecule in this universe is held together by his powerful word. If he were for a split second to stop speaking, the universe would cease to exist. And his word is the chief way in which he communicates to his creatures, to human beings made in his image. The only species on the planet able to speak and express the life of our hearts and our souls with words because we're made in the image of God who speaks. So there's no higher privilege than knowing that we can speak God's words after him to be an echo of God. That means there's also no more solemn responsibility to make sure we both listen to him and reflect him faithfully in what we say. So to claim to be a prophet can be an incredibly presumptuous and arrogant thing. To, To claim to be able to hear God and to claim to be able to speak God's word. Something I wasn't expecting when I started in my role here at Bethel was uh, the messages that I would start receiving, mainly in emails or letters, from various self-proclaimed prophets, wanting me and wanting our church to get on board with their agenda, which they said was the Lord's agenda. I think I've shared this before, but for a while our church was receiving in the mail almost on a weekly basis letters from a man uh, based in Melbourne who claimed to be a prophet and a prophet who apparently is predicted in the book of Revelation. When he began predicting the destruction of Melbourne and Sydney by God, uh, by the end of 2018, I knew his time was limited 
And when 2019 came, guess what? The letter stopped because he had been exposed as a false prophet, someone who presumed to hear God and to speak God's words but really was just speaking his own words. Jesus warned us against false prophets, calling us to not be led astray but instead to focus on him and his words and if we do that, our lives will be like the man who built his house upon a rock. So it's no longer through a special class of people that the Spirit works to enable God's word to be heard. Instead, the whole of God's people, the church, is a prophetic community. Together, we have all received the anointing of the Holy Spirit by being one in Jesus Christ. Together, we hear God's word Uh, given to us in the scriptures. And as we speak that word to one another and as we speak the gospel to the world around us, we all together are engaged in prophetic ministry. See what Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See there, there's the, the royalty and the priesthood. So, There's no longer priests as a class of people. We are all a priesthood. There's no longer kings as a class of people ruling over God's people. We are all a royal people. But see the prophetic aspect there. We are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. I want to to finish, highlight two key implications of this for us. Firstly, in how we speak. Peter tells us, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Notice that we are to speak to serve one another, to be good stewards of God's very grace. So in all of our speaking, regardless of the setting or context, we are to be seeking to serve and to build others up, not to serve ourselves or to destroy others. And the context that Peter is speaking of here is within the church, how we relate to one another as we look forward to Jesus' return and how we seek to live together for his glory in the present. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. It applies to those of us who preach and teach, but also to all of us, whenever we speak the things of the Lord, the word of God. We must have a reverence for God's word so that we dare not say something as truth unless we are sure that it is built on and grounded in God's word. But at the same time, we have a confidence. We have a confidence that the spirit is on us, that the spirit is among us. And so we all can hear and understand and speak God's word. 
It doesn't mean that all we do is quote Bible verses at each other, although maybe there are times when we just need to speak the word of God so clearly and directly in that way. But at least when we quote the Bible, we can be confident that it's God speaking. And even if our explanation or our interpretation of it is faulty, God's word has still been spoken. God is big enough to to take our muddled words, our uh, unclear understandings of the scriptures as we share that with one another and to still work through that and speak through that as we encourage one another. So the more we know the scriptures, the more we allow them to permeate our thinking and our desiring, we'll find that we'll have a growing confidence in the spirit to work through us to speak God's word boldly. The second implication is for how we live. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. To say that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit is to say we are a sanctified, holy people. Christ, by his death, has cleansed us from our sin and has made us as persons a suitable, holy dwelling place for God by his Spirit. So the Spirit not only dwells among us as the church, but he also dwells in you as a child of the Father. You are a holy one. You are a saint. The fullness of the Spirit is in you if you're truly living by faith in Jesus Christ. His home in you and with you is permanent. He's set up his dwelling place in you. You're now the Holy Spirit's home. God has poured out his spirit on your flesh, as we heard on, in Joel and the day of Pentecost. So to do anything else with your body other than glorify God is an affront to all that he's done, to make you his holy spirit-filled temple. Do you see how both of these commands about how we speak and how we live have the goal of the glory of God? This is what the Spirit's work is all about, ultimately, transforming us, renewing us, shaping us to be more like Jesus so that we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we stand before you as your children, holy, sanctified, purified, cleansed and filled and baptised with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he has come and made his residence in us, in our bodies, in our church. And we ask, Father, that by your grace we might be enabled to speak and to live as those who are filled and indwelt by the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, a hymn about the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's come and grace applied.